Welcome to yet another episode of The Brand Called You. We have brought a lot of very, very interesting individuals and today we have someone who has really reached the pinnacle of the corporate world, Manu Anand. Manu, welcome to our show. Thank you. Um, Manu is a Stefanian, did his honours in physics. He's a chartered accountant. Then he joined ICI, he worked for Frito-Lay. Uh, he was chairman and president of PepsiCo in India. And then he was president Asia, Middle East and Africa of Mondelez, the chocolate company. What a fascinating career. Um, Manu, you started off life as a chartered accountant. You were one of, one of the few people who I know uh, who as a finance person has made it so big in the corporate world. What was the secret of this success? Well, I, I don't think there was any secret as such. It was just uh, going along with doing what I enjoy doing. Yeah. Uh, just to share a little bit of the background, started, as you said, as a chartered accountant. And in fact, I even drifted into chartered accountancy. Now I look back and say, how did I end up a chartered accountant? I'm not quite sure because I did my undergrad in physics, uh, but uh, ended up being a chartered accountant. And I started working for then what was a lovely company, ICI India. And got great experiences working across their various businesses. So whether with paints and rubber chemicals or whether pharmaceuticals, agrochemicals, explosives. So got a very, for 12 years, worked for them across a cross-section of uh, businesses, different locations in India. And uh, different kinds of roles, pure hardcore transaction processing to controls and accounting to business accounting. And actually, when I was doing the planning and business finance part, that's when I started getting very interested in businesses. And I did this role in paints as the finance manager, as the business finance business partner to the general manager. And that's when I started saying, I love business, getting into businesses, mm -hmm. getting to learn about what the consumer, customer, supply chain is all about. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking that, look, if I really wanted to do something in life, what would I want to do? And I said, it's to be the general manager to head a business. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, well, continuing in the finance stream in a company that was, well, not growing may not have been the best, uh, best way to build that experience. And uh, somebody advised me, well, you want end-to-end -end experience, join a startup and that to join a startup in consumer products. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I got an opportunity to join Frito-Lay India, that was, well, it was a business that had shut down and restarting mm -hmm. as their CFO. I, I jumped into it and people said, are you mad? You're joining a company with a turnover was literally a few crores. Mm -hmm. You're giving up a nice, safe, secure job, ICI, like, mm -hmm. like ITC mm -hmm. was a company you joined yeah. and then you retired from that company. And, yeah. you, you know, people said, you are leaving behind a pension. Mm -hmm. Are you crazy? But I said, look, I've got a whole career ahead of me. I want some new experiences, yeah. exciting experiences. So I joined this company. It was a tiny little company, a startup. Mm -hmm. uh, it was great fun learning and to end just putting in basic systems. And see, the good part of a small company is you get to know everything, correct? And when you're working on tight budgets, you're either short of a head of sales at some point or short of a head of operations at some point. And I used to keep raising my hand and saying, I'll do that as a night job. My day job, mm -hmm. of course, would continue to be the CFO. So I built up a, a very good set of experiences. And each time I'd learn something new, I'd be more convinced that I think I can head a business. I think I can do a good job. And that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, at that point, PepsiCo had other ideas. They said, no, before we give you that break, first we want to give you a global exposure. So they packed me off to Australia for a year and I worked on a very, very exciting project. And that project. was with Frito-Lay. That was with Frito-Lay. Okay. And uh, th that time Frito-Lay and Pepsi used to operate as separate businesses. And uh, so I did a very interesting uh, acquisition M&A assignment in Australia for a better part of the year. 
And then I was I just got, I'd say I was lucky. It was the right place at the right time. I had the India head job open up and I came back to head the India business. And that was my first exposure as general manager. Wow. Did that job for nine years. Amazing. Now, people ask me, how did you do the same job for nine years? And I said, no, it wasn't the same job for nine years because we started with a tiny company and ended up with a big operation. It was a new job every year building this out. But really great fun because not only was it building a business, it was actually building an industry. Yeah. Branded salty snacks did not exist. You got namkeens and packets, you got potato chips and poly packs. And that was the time that we really took the lead in building it out into a, a branded industry, which is now a scale industry. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great fun. That was really great fun. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, uh, Frito-Lay was the company that really brought the dal bhujia and the chana dal and everything else uh, into such fascinating packaging. And that's what we must have really set the trend. That said, both that and the potato chips and then innovation like Kurkure set the trend. And then a lot of other companies did a great job of building that or or building similar businesses. But it was, uh, and it was a very interesting job because... I mean, to make a good potato chip, you've got to grow a good potato, yeah. which didn't grow in India. So you got into agri all the way up to consumer. It couldn't have been more fun, more exciting and, uh, and great learning. Uh, so that was great so did you have to go through a lot of research before you took a decision? Because this was completely not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say mom and pop sector. It's completely unorganized halwai sitting and doing it in every little city. Yeah, well, there was a, like any other consumer product, there's an element of research and then you say, okay, that's great, but those are only inputs. <laughs> and then there's just business judgment and, and, and common sense. Correct. And, uh, you know, uh, surround yourself with a team of good people who understand consumer and customer well and then work together to come out with the right, uh, with the right decision. So that was a great experience. And, uh, and how, that, how do you convince your big American uh, company that you needed to start something different? I mean, I was talking to uh, McDonald's and they had a very difficult time convincing McDonald's worldwide to launch a vegetarian burger. So I was thinking of you and how did you manage to do something like this? Well, it was easier to convince them because they started their business with the US model mm. and three years later they had lost so much money that they had to shut it down. Okay. So they were prepared to listen to any idea that would allow you to grow the business without too much investment. And the logic we explained to them was simple. Yeah. Branded potato chips today are yeah. not well penetrated. Yeah. You need to have to build a distribution system. Let's build it on products that penetrate the distribution system. And so the namkeens on the back of which we built out the potato chip business. And that worked because interestingly over time, the namkeen business fell into the background and it was the potato chips and the kurkure and the Cheetos that took over and built out that business on the back of that. But had it been a focused market with a lot of expats wanting to give you inputs and help, we probably would never have got to that stage and we'd have still been trying to build out a potato chip business without the backbone of a distribution system. Amazing, amazing. Well, let me take you back to ICI. You and I were together in Calcutta. I was at ITC, you were at ICI. Very, in those days, very British companies. Um, very, very strong uh, management, corporate cultures. And from there, you moved into American companies. How was that change of culture? You know, it, it was a big shift. And I think the cultural change came in two, in, on, two, on two fronts. One is, if you recollect the time we used to work in Calcutta, everything was licensed. Yeah. Demand was in excess of capacity. So I guess business was just that much easier to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the issues that you were focused on were other things like union and labor and things like that, and not really on consumer or customer. Ah, let's be honest, there were 9.30 to 5.30 jobs. I mean, I remember in my days at Calcutta, 6 o'clock in the evening, I'd be at Rackets Club playing yeah. squash. 
I can't think of having worked weekends. And of course, there was, you never had telephones, so there was no calls coming at home late in the That's evening. True. Or your telephones in Calcutta never worked, whichever way it was. And they were organized companies, good systems, good processes, good support staffs, everything. And then I came out of that into an American startup culture where it, was, it felt like the Wild West initially. Mm-hmm. There was really very little infrastructure. You had to put in everything. A small P&L, so you couldn't build up large organizations. And you had to do so much more yourself that you were not used to. But that also taught you how inefficient possibly we were in the old days and how comfortable we had got with a secure PL, knowing that your, yeah. your top line is going to grow, that you're not going to lose market share because there's no additional capacity coming in. So you're in a safe position yeah. and you could just run your business in a, in a business as usual way. So it was a big cultural transformation, but a huge learning experience. I learned a lot in ICI. I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about people management because, you know, in those days you had large groups of people in transaction processing that you had to manage. I learned a lot about customer management and channel management in the paints business. But coming to the American company, I learned how to do things frugally, quickly. Mm-hmm. Second, of course, was speed. We just had to do, I mean, in, in, in British companies, you could take your time here. Every quarter was a, was a new life. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the other part I'd had yeah. to just do was speed. So it was great learning from both companies. Very interesting. So, you know, I was talking to some very, very senior uh, human resources uh, lady and she was speaking to me about culture and how important it is for startups to build a strong culture. So as someone who has spent all his life in multinationals, which have a strong culture, what would be some of your key takeaways uh, of culture in an organization that is well established? versus uh, culture that startups use, need to think about? Okay. Well, it's a, that's, a, that's a great question because I think it goes back to our previous uh, question that we yeah. talked about. ICI had a very established culture. You knew how it operated. You knew how the formal network operated. You knew how the informal network yeah. operated. You knew the value systems. And as we moved to a startup, now PepsiCo, India, Frito-Lay those days, while you were part of a large multinational, you were also in a way a startup and you were building and evolving your own day-to-day operating culture. Well, of course, there were certain aspects of the corporate culture and governance, which were sacrosanct. And thank God for that, because it's always good to work in a setup like that. And uh, we had to evolve our own culture, how we take decisions, how this the network works, how we uh, 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 you, you know keep each other informed as to what was happening. What are the do's and don'ts? What are the absolute lines not to cross? Of course, the boundaries were well known with it. But within that, Every company does things different. So I had a good experience of building a culture, but more importantly than evolving it as we, from a small startup, as we grew to larger companies, being able to make that transition of adjusting yeah. to, hey, we can't run this company the way we used to yesterday. We are five times that size. Mm-hmm. How do we change differently? While keeping certain things common, which is entrepreneurial, business-oriented, uh, strong eye on the PL, mm-hmm. and um, continuously focused on the consumer. Wonderful. So coming back to your journey, we spoke about Frito-Lay. When did you move to Pepsi? And talk to us about your journey in Pepsi. Yeah. So after heading uh, Frito for nine years, uh, about that time, PepsiCo had gone into what they called Power of One, where they started merging the snacks and business, uh, snacks and beverage business under a common leadership team. Obviously, I was keen to do the top job in, yeah. uh, in India, but I had no beverage experience. So... Uh, they gave me, uh, fortunately, they gave me an, a great opportunity where I went to head the uh, combined snacks and business, uh, beverage businesses in Southeast Asia. Okay. Um, it was a collection of seven, eight countries, uh, interesting business models, company-owned, franchise, 
snacks businesses, uh, joint ventures, uh, and very different geographies. So I think that was a phenomenal experience because it was learning at multiple levels, mm. learning in new geographies. And each one of those geographies is slightly different. Those countries were different. So learning, I mean, you know, Vietnam and Thailand are very, very different culturally, for yeah. example. So learning to operate in a multicultural environment, uh, learning the beverage business, of course. And uh, the third was moving from running a business and really going into depth to running a portfolio of businesses and learning mm. to what level you have to uh, detail you need to get into and where you have to just delegate effectively to businesses which had great general managers. Mm. So that was a phenomenal three-year uh, learning experience. And I think by then, then the company felt comfortable that I knew the beverage business yeah. and I could manage the uh, larger scale business. Mm. So I came back to head the combined snacks and beverage businesses uh, with the title of uh, head of German of PepsiCo mm. India. And that was a, another very interesting journey. So, you know, for a very high profile organization like Pepsi uh, and being the, the, the numero uno, the chairman of Pepsi India, that must have been uh, a challenging job. What were some of your key challenges there? Well, the normal business challenges were there. Yeah. That Those don't go away. Yeah. They become competitive businesses. In the beverage side, you have the normal, yeah. the duopoly that you were always dealing with. Pepsi and keep hoping for a hotter summer. Keep hoping for hotter summer. <laughs> the snacks businesses saw a lot of new entrants, including yeah. ITC. So yeah. there was continuous competition there that we, we had to work. So that, at the end, was the core of the job. If you manage that well, uh, everything else then, then, then follows. But equally, as you said, being a high-profile company, you were always in the eye of the media. Yes. You were always in the eye of NGOs. Yeah. Who were, you were always in the eye of government and regulatory authorities. Mm -hmm. So a lot of time would be spent on making sure we've got the right governance. We are effectively projecting our brand without necessarily being overly, uh, let's say, media's, um, media hyped up, but making sure that we do the right things for projecting our both our corporate mm -hmm. and individual brands. And uh, above all, making sure that as a company, we have the right value systems right. that uh, you would never have to worry about something radically wrong going on in the company, something unethical going on in the company. And a lot of time spent on training people on that on continuously talking to people from the day they joined mm -hmm. uh, about that. And right. it was a, something that the entire management team had to do all the time. You know, everyone I speak to from large corporate world, speaks of two things that you also mentioned. One is strong culture and strong value systems. And I keep emphasizing the need for strong values in any organization. You know, any thoughts on uh, a strong value-based organization? Okay. Well, I, firstly, as an individual, I think the most important is to work in an organization whose value systems are in sync with your personal Correct. value system. Because yeah. if those are not, you're going to be a very unhappy person all the time. Um, Honestly, at the end, we all go in there, we are professionals, we go to work, and the one thing we would hate to do, yeah. and you would, wouldn't want to do it, and wouldn't want to do, ask anybody to do something which they consider ethically wrong or unethical in, in, in any way whatsoever. So if you can't set that right in the company, and you can't define that to people who come, then you could result in a lot of dissatisfied employees or employees who misinterpret something and do it mm -hmm. in a way that the company would not mm -hmm. like to do it. So mm -hmm. I think that's that's got to be a bedrock or a foundation for any organization mm -hmm. uh, for them to be able to focus then on the business versus worry about what's yeah. going to go wrong. Interesting. So after Pepsi came Mondelez? After PepsiCo came Mondelez. Uh, um, how, how was that journey? And how, how did you make the transition and how was that journey? Well, it was an interesting uh, change. I mean, I'd spent about 20 years with PepsiCo then, and uh, by then I was touching about 55. I was clear I wanted to work for at best five years more. 
I said, why not do something different now? Not that I mean, PepsiCo was a great company, great organization. Mm. I've been very happy there. But uh, I said, let's do something different. And something different, uh, by then we were empty nesters. So we were mobile. We were happy to move around. So when Mondelez contacted me first to, to, to head the India business, I said, well, sounds fun. Because, and the one thing that attracted me, as a youngster working in Bombay, I used to drive past Cadbury House every day. As a youngster, I used to eat Cadbury chocolates and love Cadbury chocolates and go and eat so I said, here's a chance, you know, and, and I just used to look at that play building and say, wow, lucky guys who come and work here every day. <laughs> so I said, well, here's a chance for me to come in here yeah. and, um, and, um, yeah, and, and work for a brand that I truly, truly love. Mm. And that's one of the reasons. Now, there's another interesting anecdote. Um, I, I, I told people the first day I joined Mondelez was I had only been to Cadbury House once before that. And that was in my days in Ferguson when I was... Cadbury was an audit that was Ferguson was doing. And my first day in Ferguson, I was told, go to Cadbury House. And I went in there absolutely raw and uh, was put in the basement and asked to do some work. And I was a science graduate. I wasn't even a commerce graduate. So obviously, I made a mess of something on the first day. And the audit manager said, you know what? You're not ready to come here as yet. Just go back to the office and let them assign you somewhere else. <laughs> so I told everybody, last time I was here, I was thrown out in 48 hours. <laughs> this time, I hope I do a better job now that I've come back here. So there was some old emotional connection uh, uh, with, with Brand Cadbury. Yeah. The fact that such an exciting brand and uh, the desire to do something new took me there. And you, were, uh, you ran uh, Asia, Middle East and Africa. That's a huge territory. That was a huge territory. That was probably... So, I, were, you, were you constantly on a plane? I was on a plane a fair amount of time, yes. Mm-hmm. I, when I wasn't on a plane, I was uh, speaking into a video screen all the time. <laughs> but uh, honestly, I say I finished my career mm-hmm. possibly doing the best job. I mean, when you tell somebody, I was president of chocolates for Asia, Middle East, Africa, a company which has brands like Cadbury, Toblerone and wow. Milka. I said, wow. I mean, how can we get your job? And I said, you've got to work bloody hard to get I there. <laughs> but it, it was a fascinating I job know. because... You had big developed markets like yeah. Australia, a big market in India, but probably in a different model. Markets like Egypt, South Africa. We launched in China when I was uh, when I was uh, running that business, and so it was fascinating. Yes, it required a being on a plane, b being on calls at all odd hours because you were dealing with yeah. uh, the the office back in New York in, in Chicago as well. But uh, it was a wonderful job, really exciting because as a category, it's so exciting, yeah. and then you get a chance to interact with consumers who you, know, you just Love your brands. Mm, and there's nothing more exciting than that. So you've done three stints outside India. I have often said that, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, we have a lot, a lot of people uh, who are, uh, you know, a global audience who listens to us. But So I'm going to be a little parochial here. But I've always believed that Indians make very, very good expatriate managers. Uh, because Indians are working... Uh, all over the world in companies of all kinds of backgrounds. Why do you think that happens? I think there are two or three reasons. I think one is we're just very, very adaptable. Mm-hmm. And I remember giving somebody an example when I was running of uh, Thailand versus India when I was just comparing the two businesses that we had there. In those days in India, we had so 25 different sales tax mm-hmm. laws, different doctoral laws, different excise classifications. And then you were perpetually dealing with transport strike here, a band here, uh, a hartal there, and trying to work your way through that. You were trying to distribute in a mass of 2 million outlets versus most companies would sell to mm-hmm. 5 or 10 large customers. So we learned to be very yeah. flexible, adaptable, think on our feet and work our way out of situations mm-hmm. very, very well and very, very quickly. Nothing 
overawes us or gets us too worried because we're just used to dealing with complexity. Mm-hmm. You're used to dealing with crisis, mm-hmm. and that makes it very easy to adapt. I think, secondly, we are quick learners. We work very hard to learn quickly. We adapt quickly. So I think a couple of these strengths that really work in our favor. But at the same time, I think there are a couple of watchouts that I always used to tell people after my experiences when um, when uh, when when Indians would go out to expect assignments, and I'd say there are two. One is we're not the best of listeners, mm-hmm. and working in global assignments, we've really got to improve our listening skills yeah. because we like to say what is in our mind, and we're busy telling people about what we think, not sometimes spending enough time being Correct. great listeners. Correct. And the second, not uh, the best team workers, and I don't mean team workers that we we negatively go out and sabotage other people. But India, it's everybody's trying to excel and everybody's trying to show that they are the best at what they are doing. And sometimes they forget to carry the team or give enough credit to co-workers as they get along. And these are the couple of watchouts I'd always tell people about when they head out. That's a very, very interesting observation because I've said that, you know, because of the sheer population we have from the time we are children, we are always told, get ahead, get ahead. And that has started reflecting in traffic. Somehow or the other, you've got to get your car right in front. That's true. That has started happening when there's a queue. Somehow or the other, I must get right in front. So that's, that's a very, right. very good observation. And that's the one I tell people that you will get the credit if the team wins. Yeah. You don't have to be always saying, I'm the guy who did it. You don't have to dominate the share of voice in a meeting, mm-hmm. in, a, in a half an hour meeting, be speaking for 15 minutes to show you're the brightest guy in the room. It's your actions that will tell people that you are. So, in, you know, we, we, are, we are of a generation when I think companies had begun to start realizing the potential of Indian managers. 30, 35 years later, do you see uh, much greater opportunities for Indian managers to live and work outside with multinationals? I I think so clearly and we're seeing that across companies because uh, I think a couple of added dimensions to what we talked about. One is I think the next generation are getting more global in their education. Mm -hmm. They're getting more global in their outlook. I mean, I, I tell people that the first time I got on a plane and traveled out of India was when I was the age of 29 or 30. I didn't know what it felt like to, to go through immigration. Yeah. I think younger people are just getting global exposure much earlier and therefore creating that global activity. Honestly, I think things like the IB system of education just helps the younger kids get more global Prepare in the way they much, think yeah. versus, let's say, the way we studied, which was a lot about, well, let me mug all this up and go in and, and, and write it out in, in those three hours I've got there. Mm. So I think our kids are getting better trained to be global uh, citizens mm. and uh, yeah, to do well globally much earlier in life and combine that with all the other strengths that we talked about, mm. which uh, which a lot of people in India have. And I think we've we got a great expat opportunities for, uh, for the next generation. So one more question before I move on to some more personal items, uh, questions. You have worked only for three companies, right? ICI, Frito-Lay Pepsi, and Mondelez. And you made it right to the top of these big companies running huge, not a country, but a region, um, three regions maybe. What is the advantage of staying uh, with one or two or three companies versus today's concept of jumping jobs every two years? Well, I guess... To me, if you look at why, why, why do people move around? Firstly, there's a negative aspect. I don't like the culture yeah. in my company. It's toxic. I got a yeah. boss and he and I just can't yeah. see eye to eye and it's miserable every day going to work. Yeah. But if you take those aside and say, I'm enjoying myself in the company, then I think there are only two or three reasons, yeah. but at least in my mind, why yeah. one should be making changes. One, I'm not getting enough new experiences. Yes. I'm getting into a rut. I'm not getting enough experiences. 
So, so long as the company is giving you great experiences, there's no hurry. There's no reason to change. You can get build new skills and new capabilities in the same company. Uh, I guess the second, of course, is upward movement. I'm not getting my promotions. I feel I'm blocked because of whatever reason there's people my age above me or whatever that is. So, uh, again, if that's uh, not, not, not a reason, then probably uh, you don't have to rush out. And the third is, well, I'm getting an increase or I'm getting a big salary increase or things like that. That's going to make a big difference. Now, to me, if you're getting those three in your existing organization, new experiences, the right movement. And honestly, while short-term salary increases sound great, maximum asset or wealth creation happens with longer careers with things now, with things like stock options and bonuses being yeah. a little more long-term and not so yeah. short-term. Yeah. I honestly did not have any reason to change it. The two changes I made were for specific reasons. Yeah. When I left ICI, it was, well, ICI at that time was not growing. In fact, they were selling off businesses. So I could clearly see that the growth opportunities are not. And I wanted specifically some new experiences. When I left PepsiCo, it was, well, I had now done the same thing for about 20 years and I couldn't see a new set of experiences opening up for me in the organization. That's the only reason I made the two changes I did and uh, otherwise I've been very happy with the longer career. So my advice to people, if you're getting what you want where you are, there will always be somebody calling you and offering you a little more money or tempting you with a change, but ask yourself, what difference is that going to make to your life? Which one is going to give you more pleasure in life? At the end, if you're working for an organization, working with good people, you like the value systems of the organization you're working, you're respected, you're getting the respect you want. Think twice before just jumping for correct whatever else you're jumping for. Very true. So I'm going to move into another aspect of uh, your life. You know, uh, I wrote a book on retirement. And to me, retirement is really um, on account of the superannuation policies of your employer and nothing to do with you. And for some strange reason in India, we don't like to talk retirement. It's like a taboo subject. And yet, um, most of us who've got reasonably good health will probably have 30 years post 60. And that life will be almost equal to your working life. And therefore, we have to plan for it. You are a business advisor. I see that you've really adjusted well in the last six, seven months since you moved back to India. Uh, as a business advisor, as a board member of uh, some companies, um, how have you embarked upon your second innings? Well, I think firstly, the most important thing is end your first innings only when you're ready to end your first things. Okay. I think at senior levels, the age or the superannuation age is irrelevant yeah. because you can add with your organization or some other organization continue till when you want to continue. Yeah. In my case, for example, I, I, I chose to retire two years before I could have carried on to because I was ready for retirement. So the important thing is choose the timing of your choice when you're ready to do it. And I think a few factors drive that decision. One, of course, you have to have created enough uh, asset to be able to be sure that you can spend the next 30 years and enjoy your life without, uh, without having to worry about uh, where the money is coming from. But secondly, I think you've got to feel that you fulfilled your agenda your achievements, you feel happy about that. And the third, you've got to be comfortable to be living with a diff- with a, without having your corporate persona. Mm. You will lose a lot of the titles, the, 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 the support systems that go with having a full-time job that at senior level. But if you're comfortable with these three, and lastly and most important, you've got to be clear that you've got something else to do with your time. Then and if you've got enough that you think is exciting you and interesting you, that's the time to retire. And so choose your timing is to me 
the most important uh, piece of advice I could give everybody. And and then enjoy it. Do all the things that you never had time to do. And uh, make the most of that. And uh, get ready for that next innings. And I'm still going through that process of getting ready for that next innings. It's only been eight or nine months. Uh, But I'm just enjoying the downtime and enjoying this. So at what stage of your life should one start thinking of life after superannuation or after retirement? How soon should you start planning? Because I'm sure you and I know several people who haven't planned and are quite miserable. They don't know how to fill their day. That, yeah. I took, at one time, I had thought of doing it earlier in life. But uh, let's say I don't really thought about retiring at 55. But when I was 53, 54, I realized I was not ready for it. Uh, and it was exactly that. Yeah. What will I do if tomorrow I have to start sitting at home? What will I do? And so I said, first thing, let me take some more time. Let me finish my agenda. Let me be sure that I'm, I'm clear what I want to do with that. But I guess some of these are things you've been dreaming of from mm-hmm. every day you have a bad day in office and you come back and say, shit, I wish I didn't have to go to office tomorrow. I could be traveling or I could be on the golf course or I could be Correct. playing bridge with my friends Correct. or whatever. Correct. So it's not that you're thinking about all your life, but um, I think thought starts crystallizing mm-hmm. probably two, three years mm-hmm. before you're ready to retire. And once those crystallize, then you say, okay, now I think I'm ready. Wonderful. So what keeps you going every morning? I think there's just so much to do, mm-hmm. you know, interacting with friends, uh, catching up on some reading. Uh, for the first time, I've enjoyed watching a World Cup cricket. I've got the time to watch every match. In the past, I used to see highlights every yeah. evening yeah. and that was about it, for example. Yeah. So doing things like that, I, I'm uh, nice to get back to playing golf uh, uh, regularly with a, you know, with, a, with a number of friends yeah. and travel. I really wanted, you know, I did a lot of business travel and therefore, when I was working, actually, when the thought of traveling on a holiday, I never enjoyed because it felt like work once again. Now, traveling without an agenda is such fun. Mm-hmm. I never realized that just to go to a city and spend 10 days there mm-hmm. and, uh, and and take your time. Uh, spending more time with my boys. I never just got enough time. So that we been and spend time with both of them. So there's just a lot that keeps you busy at the same time. Some amount of work going to keep you engaged, yeah. keep you uh, abreast of what's happening in the various industries that you've been linked with or would like to be linked with and keep you keep the learning going I mean, never stop learning is, is, is one of the mantras that I, I always believed in so it really it keeps me well engaged fabulous so one question i love to ask all my guests uh, is tell us about your learnings from your failures okay first learning from a failure whatever firstly i think in the kind of jobs that we i've had there's been a huge list of failures and, 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 I, and I acknowledge those. I mean, you're taking big decisions, you're taking consumer-facing decisions, you're taking investment decisions. You can be sure that you'll get 20 to 30% of them wrong. And that's the reality. And I think a few learnings that I've had. First, learn to spot the failure early. And I think that's where a number of us go wrong. And in my earlier years, I used to go wrong because it's a decision you've taken. It's a brand you've launched. It's an investment that you've made in something. You want to make it work. And you're not willing to recognize as a failure, you're more comfortable saying, well, we haven't done it correctly. Let's give it one more chance. So I think the first is just recognize that things aren't going right. Mm-hmm. The second is own the failure. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, XYZ advised me and I followed their advice or my mm-hmm. team told me this or those guys didn't execute well. No, if you're the man in the chair, mm-hmm. it's your failure. Own the failure. Yeah. Uh, and of course, do your best to salvage what you can out Correct. of that failure and make Correct. the most for it. Uh-huh. And importantly, Get the people associated with that assignment, get them to feel comfortable that they don't, they are not seen as failures because that particular venture, business, launch, whatever it was, failed. So do the right thing for the people, build back their confidence. But lastly, I think the most important is 
reflect on the failure truly with yourself and maybe talk to a few close friends who would tell you the truth to your face and reflect, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? What would I do differently? Because I think the most important thing about it is not to repeat a failure. I mean, we'll all fail. If you repeat the failure, then you're, you're not doing the right thing. So my last question, Manu, you know, as someone who has spent three and a half decades in the corporate world, what would your advice be to young managers three, four, five years into their lives and looking ahead, starry-eyed, as at the chairman of Pepsi or the chairman of uh, Mondelez and say, one day I'll get there. What would your advice be to them? Well, I think the important thing to remember is it's a, it's a long career ahead of you. It's, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So think it through and pace yourself. I think a few things that I would really advise people. Firstly, enjoy what you do. Don't get so obsessed with getting into a position or into a particular role just to do it, to be able to get somewhere if you're not enjoying it. You've got to get up and go to work feeling energized every morning. Mm. The second is always give it your best shot. You've got to come back home in the evening saying, I don't think I left anything out there today. I did whatever the best I could. Some days things will work. Some days things will not work. Mm. But uh, reflect honestly, truly to yourself and be sure that uh, that you're doing, uh, that you gave it, gave it your best shot. The third I'd say is continue to learn. Never stop learning. Always look for new assignments. Always look for different experiences. Because at the end, they all accumulate and help you do the big jobs that you're going to work later. The more you can get and the more you can learn, the better you will, uh, uh, the better you will do that job when, 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 it, uh, when it comes to you. Um, surround yourself with great people, work with great people, learn from people, find mentors, find people who can uh, give you advice and help. And in turn, mentor other people because that all again helps you build a great corporate reputation. It helps you build a great team around you and people who, who help you. Never compromise your values. Whatever you do, never compromise your values. And if you find uh, you know, your personal values are compromised, then sit down and really think about what you're going to do about it. Because if you're working in an environment where your values are compromised, you will be the most unhappy person. Uh, but above all, I remember it's a marathon. Manage your work-life balance. You've got to take care of the work, of course, that's important, that you've got to get ahead. You've got a family and then lastly, you've got yourself. Look after your health, keep your exercise, keep a recreation that allows you to de-stress because if you go back on Monday morning stressed, you're never going to get over that. So uh, manage that long marathon effectively by keeping a good work-life balance. Manu, thank you very much. I think your incredible words of wisdom will be heard by thousands and thousands of people. And I'm grateful that you've been so transparent, so honest with all your comments. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you. It was a pleasure Thank you so being much. here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Simply search for the brand called you. Thank you and see you next week.